Today we have the internationally renowned Dr. Sindria Magona, my personal mm. mentor, even though she doesn't know it. Um, she <laughs> has outstanding achievements in literature, poetry, playwright, um, and is definitely someone who uses words as resistance, who has written about women, black women, everyday women, who has written about the issues that pertain to this country. She is definitely a civil servant and among some of the greatest writers that our country has ever seen. And we are so lucky to still have her with us and hoping that she's still writing. Yeah, so, so happy that she definitely forms part of a living archive in our country. I mean, you can easily look at look her up and see all her degrees in social work yeah. from Columbia University, all the um, awards she's received from our government and internationally but she's definitely still a force to be reckoned with. Um, mm -hmm. And we are certainly excited to, to be hosting her today and speaking about all things Black women, South Africa, African, and the, the importance of writing and writing Black stories. And so, Mama, welcome, welcome to Walking on Water. Um, we are so, so, so excited to have you. No, I am excited to thank you for having me. Thank you for having mm. me. There's no point in writing if nobody is reading you. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> this is true. One doesn't write for oneself. Mm. Is is that part of your motivation for writing? Well, you know, I in my one book of po poetry uh, with the title, please take photographs. Mm. I have a poem there about why I write. Mm. You know, one of the reasons that made me write is that in the height of black consciousness, there was this anger uh, amongst, you know, politically aware and, you know, activists. activists. Why are white people writing about us? Hmm. And then it occurred to me that white people writing about me doesn't stop me writing about me. Hmm. Right. You, can, you can dictate what other people do. Your job is to do what is before you. Mm. I, I, I'm not a trained writer, but I began to see the value of putting an ordinary story, an ordinary life such as mine for the record. Because our grandparents, my parents were barely literate. Neither of them had one certificate of education. They didn't finish primary school. And their parents hardly set foot in, you know what I mean? So, but they left stories because they told us stories, but those are not mm. written down. And I began to feel if I don't write about me and my times, mm. something is wrong with me. My mm. children's children, that's why my first book is to my children's children. That's not my biological right. offspring. I begin yeah. to see that no system lasts forever. As a student of history, you know that. There have been dynasties that have gone, you know, just got, you know, to a stop. Got destroyed right. or stopped. Or, and I knew 
as strong as apartheid seemed. And it was very strong in my life. I, did, I didn't think one day it would be no more. Mm. I knew that. Now I'm not going to lie. I didn't think it would come, to, it would end during my lifetime. I didn't even think it would end during the lifetime of my children. But I thought perhaps their children might see the end of apartheid. 2,000 years from now, I'm thinking, people will want to know, people in South Africa, people elsewhere, students of you know, social sciences. Yeah, what right. was it like? What was apartheid? Which is why my biography is so honest. I wasn't writing really for people who would look at my face and say, you did that? <laughs> no, <laughs> I was writing for posterity. Mm. It's our job. Those of us who can string two, three sentences together must leave what I call in my writing footprints. There are two reasons I write. To say this is how it was to be an ordinary Bantu woman as we were labeled. Also, to do something that for very long, mm. we believed we were, we were raised thinking only august personages like ministers of religion or principals, or you know, not even principals, schools inspectors could write. All the books of my youth written, guess it was, were written by men, elderly men, august okay. people. How would I have thought I could write? I never had such a dream. You can't dream mm. of things you do not see. One of the reasons I write is that children who look like me in my country as well as elsewhere can see somebody who looks like their mother doing this thing called writing. Wow. Well, your work has definitely done that to me, Mama, because I think the, the thesis that I'm doing on intergenerational trauma is in Ikukuleto. It's based there. But I think your work has given us the freedom to also write. Thank you. And the braveness to write. You know, I've had writers who come, male mostly, who say, you know, I read, I was at UWC, and I read your books, and then I thought, she talks about things I know. Mm. I could also mm. do this. And that, you know, people do as people do. Which is why we, you know, I, I, I always tell people, I tell my, I remind myself, we ought to be careful how we dress, how we walk, the words we use, because we are role models to others, people we know and people we don't even know. Yeah. Have you ever seen somebody dressed in a certain way, some, a stranger, and thought, oh, I like that combination of colors. That person doesn't know they are being a role model to you. Mm. You know that children who are born can only model themselves after us and look at what we are and who we are. Mm. You mentioned your, 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 your grandparents and that they, they were telling you stories and that you wanted to, in one sense, to, to, to keep uh, those stories alive by, by telling them yourself in one sense. Is that where where you learned your your love of story and your love of words from? from I grew your up on what we call yes, it was in zone folk tales in mm. English. I grew up on mm. those. My evenings mm. were evenings of joy and enjoyment, family togetherness, and mm. grandma or another grandma 
or a grandfather, even uncles and aunts. And you got to know who was the better storyteller, who was the most interesting. And when they came visiting, you wouldn't go to sleep because you knew what was coming. Mm. The joy of listening to words, somebody pour out a story and you can visualize it and the sounds that, oh. Yeah. But now <laughs> in, in, in that kind of extended family uh, uh, setting, I'm not saying that's good or that's bad. Yeah. I'm just saying this is, you know, our lifestyles have, you know, has changed. That's true. But yeah. I need to tell stories so that other people mm. can also hear my thoughts. All you right. can do when you tell a story is to tell your truth. That's what stories are, your truth. Mm. So, so do, you, do you find then in that, like in that, it, it, it is a little bit of a loss in some ways. Like it, it's, again, without saying it's good or bad, um, mm -hmm. that change that's happened within our society. But what do you, what do you think we have sort of lost by not having those spaces where we can share those communal stories as families? What do you, what, oh, do you think we've lost I, anything in that? Or? I've just finished a book of uh, essays. Mm -hmm. And I, I, that's one of the things I think I address. You know, our transition, whatever it is, from being traditional village to being urbanized and... Uh, perhaps Western eye is not complete. You know, if you take storytelling, every child knew, understood story, that something would happen. You know, if you did bad, you would be punished. If you did good, you'd be rewarded, that kind of thing, you know, more or less. So children grow up understanding life, understanding the, the, the arc of the story that there would be a beginning, something would happen, people would make mistakes, they would make amends, they would get punished or rewarded, but eventually things would come back to normal. Now that we think we are civilized, westernized, educated, sophisticated, God knows what else, we have abandoned storytelling. And yet the people we think we are following have not abandoned storytelling. Go hmm. to, what are the, 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 the shops that sell books? Exclusive books. When this thing is over. On a Saturday, go to the Saturday morning, go to the children's section and see which mothers are there with their 12 month, 18 month old babies. And when the mother reaches for a book, this little thing is reeking out of the mother's arms, reaching for the mm. book because they understand something lacquer, something good, something enjoyable, fun is in that book. Then go mm. to our school, they do it. Go to Madrid, go to grade 10, grade, grade 6 or whatever, and try to get a child not excited, just interested. Hmm. Yeah. It and also now feels science like... tells us children hmm. learn language when they are still in utero, in their mother's belly. They should be yeah. read to, they should be, you know, sang to and, and, and talked to. We don't do that. So our yeah. children lose out. 
They don't get the traditional storytelling. They don't get read to bed every evening. It also sounds like stories, like storytelling allows us to use our imagination as young people. And so when I read your stories of Islaline, I can imagine the Dasi streets of Kukulit. I can imagine the the Dasi streets of Ekono. Like I can see it in my mind's eye. And so once that isn't there, we are stripped of that opportunity to imagine. That's the whole point of storytelling, to fire Mm. the children's and everybody's imagination. What are the kind of stories that you feel like you're very passionate about? And, and has that changed over time? Do you find that your own personal faith informs how you tell stories or what stories you decide to tell? I think the stories I, 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 I write actually just choose me. I write stories that because something moves me, makes me angry, makes me sorrowful, and, and makes me, you know, just looking at it, I can understand how something like this can happen. And then my story starts from there. How could it? Why did it? I think in pursuing stories, really, I'm trying to understand my life in its totality. Because the people I write about are me, in a way. People I know have known people I could have been and am perhaps. I care deeply about my character. Even the unsavory ones, I don't hate them. Mm. So you invest in your characters as you're writing. I couldn't, I couldn't write about somebody I absolutely hated. Even the worst, the perpetrator of the worst kind of, uh, you know, Act, act. I have compassion for them because when all is said and done, they are as human as I am. We are all God made. And when they were born, they were as innocent as everybody else. Nobody gives birth to a criminal, a murderer, a rapist. Children come to us innocent full of potential to become something of worth in the world because we are all in this world for one reason and one reason only to leave the world a better place than we found it using our god-given gifts our talents is how we raise our children somewhere as a community that we lose them and the loss is not only to the family is to all of us. Where is the cure for, for this virus? Where is the cure for AIDS and all the maladies? The people in jail could be holding those talents that would have brought us the cure. Sure. We lose so much by not really nurturing our young, caring for them, guiding them. Mm. Sure, I'm, I'm just thinking about what you just said about having compassion upon your characters, even even the worst perpetrators. And that's that is certainly something I was like I was try, trying trying to make my way through mother to mother. And that's one of the perspectives I think that comes through quite clearly through that book is trying to try trying to shed understanding on how could this thing have actually happened? What sort of a society do we live in and a space yeah. do we live in that might have produced 
a young man like um, Kolisi who would have killed that young white woman within that story. And of course, reflecting, of course, on the Amy Beale story as well. So it, it, it's quite a, it's a, very, it's a very generous perspective, if I can put it that way, from a, from a writer to have that level of, of, of compassion and openness and willingness to sort of see the different perspectives, I guess, that people come from and how people can end up being twisted sometimes by their circumstances into yeah into something potentially grotesque but to still understand to still understand that there's a human being underneath all of that um and that's something which is very very powerful is that is that one of the reasons why you tell your stories to sort of to help us to understand one another better as human beings and to sort of help in telling stories and sh you know shedding light upon ourselves to sort of push back the darkness a little bit is that is that one of the some of the motivations to remind us we stories? know we understand we forget we mm. distance ourselves from you know this othering he's a criminal he's and then we don't go into the reasons and as long mm. as we do not self-examine we will never reach a point of you know you know how do we mend this if you just dismiss people as criminals you have lost them you have lost yourself because it is really in understanding how did this innocent child given to us as a community how did we fail them that they end up like this sure you know and this is not just South Africa, throughout the world. In the States, when I was there, I watched it too. The, the hundreds of young people who are behind bars. Mm -hmm. And then when they're locked in there, some of them find direction. Somebody right. goes there with no high school diploma and they end up a lawyer. They end up, how did we lose them when they were outside? And the sad thing, if you really sit down and do the math, the money we spend on people in prison, if we took that same money and spend it on our children, each child, you know how much it costs to, to keep someone in prison every day? It's not cheap. If we use that money on a young child, they might be saved from you know, the decay that's eating our children. Right. The food children eat, the books they read, where they live, what is available to them that is soul enriching instead of soul destroying. Okay. Every child should be given an opportunity from day one. In fact, from when they are still in their mother's belly, to thrive every child should be given the chance to thrive because when people do who benefits all of society when they don't who suffers all of society everyone yeah wow that's such a good reminder actually that hmm. yeah like i think what you were saying that like that children are god's gift to community and to society yes. And we the children are, are given to us in communities. I mm -hmm. mean, they come through people's bodies and we right. call this, you know, birth parents, but they are ours in community. Mm. Traditionally, the Africans used to remember that. 
When I was growing up, it didn't matter who came by you, whether it was a grown-up you knew or didn't know, you stopped doing any nonsense in front of, in, in front of a grown-up. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely true. I remember growing up a Kailicha, and my mom would always remind me that if an adult tells you to stop doing something, even if they are not like her or my father or whatever, I ought to listen to them because we form part of a bigger community beyond just people yeah. from Guangzhou or in any other thing. And I think one of the, the things that really, that's really heartbreaking that we touched on um, in our first season was just what a frustrating place it can be to live in South Africa. It is strange, complicated, um, disheartening, but there's glimmers of hope. You know, we've seen the fees must fall, roads must fall activities across universities. We've seen yeah. the gender-based violence uh, pandemic. We've seen xenophobic attacks the rise or the public rise of racism in our country um, and every form of really just destruction in our communities. And I think I'm just wondering, like, as someone who's lived through different, I guess, cycles of South Africa and apartheid and having seen a democracy, what is your view of South Africa at the moment? And where do you see glimmers of hope? Oh, South Africa. <laughs> mm. What a country. Such a beautiful country, beautiful people, but they miss, they miss one another. They miss their basic humaneness. We are so filled with hate, with fear. And we ought to be fearful because there is so much that is wrong in the system, systemic, and endemic really rot that the, the anger ought to be there and is there. You know, when democracy was first hindered, everybody, most people were jubilant, especially the oppressed, because they saw their freedom coming. I was in the States then. Mm -hmm. And the poem that I call my coming out poem, because I'm not a poet. The, the first poem I ever read out publicly in a cafe in right. New York is called Fear of Change. It mm. was written end of 93 or beginning of 94. It's not that, don't get me wrong. It's not that I didn't want the end of apartheid, but I looked at South Africa. I looked at the joy painted on, on our faces, on human faces, each time I came here. And I, my heart just went zoomed down to my ankles because I knew what was coming, disillusionment. I looked at a young man in my street in Pupuleto. You are 21, when freedom comes, you have all of three years of education, sub A, sub B, standard one. How is the fact that you can vote going to change your life? Sure. I just couldn't see it. With all the goodwill in the world, I just couldn't see how this young man would end up with a better life. But even he had stars in his eyes. He was going to have a better life. Guess what? Democracy, 
the, you know, the right to vote doesn't give you a better life. In the most ideal, what it gives is, or should be giving you is a fair opportunity of attaining such a life. Right. When I look at South Africa, I am saddened because of the work we haven't done as a nation of really addressing the ills of the past. Engineering some form, you know, both financially, but even more than that, psychologically or spiritually, of opening people's eyes to their own potential. Hmm. Nobody's going to do the work for you. Yes, the opportunities must be open to all, which is what, that's the antithesis of apartheid. Apartheid said no opportunity or opportunity according to skin color. Right. Whites got best and colored next, colors and Asiatics. And we were not even citizens. People don't, don't remember that. Until yeah. 1994, I had no South African citizenship. Until 1994, it didn't matter. You couldn't, well, 92 perhaps, you couldn't access government help if you were classified bandu. Right. You see, now those things seem like freedom, real freedom involves agency, involves you getting up and doing what you need to do. Opportunity is there, but opportunity is going to come into your life, you have to grab it. Look at school. We're supposed to have equal education. Well, just look at the schools. You look at the schools and you know nothing is equal. Education system is a, a very good example of what yeah. has not been done. You can't have equal educations in schools so disparately mm. endowed. The one has everything, the one has nothing. Children who finish school and look like me can't use the internet, have no access. Yeah. Knowing who we are and where we come from, some things ought to be given to people. And one of the things would be free internet access. In people's mm. homes, how are the people supposed to get into the you know the modern gear without access right. to wi-fi yeah because that's also access to information mm. but the thing is you know instead of giving people fish teach them to fish you know that saying what yeah. people need to be given is the way the tools to dig themselves out of poverty don't cement me in poverty. Don't tell me for the next 18 years you're going to give me money so I don't die. What is the point of living if I stay poor? Yeah. And I think that's why people call it like a cycle of poverty, right? Is that like, I think at the core of what... Um... I mean, if I give birth, I'm 13 and I give mm. birth to a baby. Am I not saying to the nation I'm in trouble? Mm. What 13-year-old gives birth to a child? Sure. And then the only response South Africa gives is, we'll give you 400 rand a month for 18 continuous years. 
are you telling me in these 18 years there will be no change in my life? Hmm. I'm 13. 13 plus 18, do the math. By 18, that child I gave birth to when I was 13 is busy giving birth to her own. And you call this poverty hmm. alleviation or whatever? Something sure. is not right. Something is not right. So it, it, it sounds like you're, you're saying that there's a... There's, there's a combination of, a combination of things that need to sort of align together. One being the that sense of agency, that sense of I, I can actually go out and do something for myself, and I can actually go out and do these things. But also, reminding our children, minding, guiding yeah. our young people. Mm. Children can raise themselves. That's why we have grown ups. It's so sad for the children of this country. Mm when there is so much available in their circumstances. I, I don't want to use the word blind them, prevent them from ever getting a glimpse of the possibilities. You know, if you're born into poverty, who are your role models? Yeah, who do you look to? What do you see around you, poverty? If you're born into poverty, every woman you see is pregnant and getting children. You think that's what it means to be a woman? Every young man you know has been in jail or is on. We, we need to break this cycle, save the children. They must know yeah. from very young this array of gorgeous possibilities right. there are in this country. They must see yeah. it, they must smell it, they must taste it and touch it. Children yeah. shouldn't be locked into poverty and know nothing, nothing else but poverty. And then we think they're going to dream. Dream what? Sure. Dreams are like lunacy. I don't care how close you are, Ayanda, mm. with someone who was born in Russia or Sea Point. Mm. If the two of you go crazy, you could be in the same hospital. But when you hallucinate, Never will you see the same thing. Mm. <laughs> it's so true. Because both madness and dreams are culture bound. Sure. So do you do you see? I'm trying to think through. Sure, like so many, so many of the characters that you that you write about, and this also touches on your own life, Mama, as well. In terms of, uh, like I like. The, the beginning of forced to grow and you're saying that you're at 23 you were you were a has-been um yeah my life was the over same it was over at that point in time but within as, as you tell your story but also as you see the story of for example beauty and her friends the, the um five firm friends the, the okay a lot of your characters have in chasing the, the, the tales of my father's cattle a lot of the characters that that you write have a, a certain a certain spunkiness and a, and a certain chasing after their own dreams and following following their own agency in one sense. So do you are you writing stories then, like in part to get people out of this locked in mindset of just carrying on the same cycle <laughs> over and over and over again? Is that part of why you, you write know, the job? You write the same story over and over again. That's my life. I mean, mm. they, I'm not a gift, but for me. My, my gift really to, 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 to others is my 
the fact that I come from, I don't want to say from nothing. I had a very good family, very loving, but I, I, I didn't have a father who was a, a principal of a school or a teacher and a mother who was, I come from peasant stock. And then I, I went into stupidity in my early, late teens, early twenties. That's why at 23, I was in that situation. And I always tell young people, I, I'm telling you this, not because I'm bragging, I'm telling you this as a warning, but I'm also saying human beings make mistakes, but don't be defined by the mistakes you have made. We are made, we are better. We are made to transcend situations. If you hate who you have become, and I hated what, I mean, I, I, I woke up and I thought, how, what happened to me? How could I end up a single parent of so many children and so young? What happened to me? I couldn't believe it. If you are not happy with your situation, if you hate who you have become or what you have become, well, get up and go. Mm. You can't sit in a situation you detest. No. You have to get up and go. Move. That's the word I use. M-O-V-E. Move. Mm. And it's not somebody who's going to move you. You have to move. Find a way. Once you have determined that you don't want to stay in this same place, M-O-V-E. Once you start, it's an amazing thing you will find help. Yeah. And Mama, what kind of work are you busy with right now in terms of training and education and writing a curriculum about the Ministry of Moving? <laughs> M-O-V-E. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Move. Move. Can I ask, Ayanda, can you ask this question again? I want to, before I forget, quickly go back to mother, to mother, if I may. Go for it, mm. yes. Mother to mother happened, you know, the Amy Bill story, yes. that tragedy. Yes. I was in New York. Of course, it made international news. I heard about it. I was saddened that my country was in international news for that kind of reason. Saddened yeah. still that it happened in Cape Town, which I call home, even when I was in New York. Sad still that it happened in Google, which was my part of Cape Town. One of the jobs I did, I had done so many jobs. I worked for the Cape City Council as a welfare worker. And my area that I covered was section three. I live in section two, but my area, when I did home visits on a Tuesday, I went to the homes of our clients in section three. When they said, when the story said at the Shell garage near, I, I could take you there blindfolded. Was I writing a novel? No. I don't know about you. These tragedies happen. I feel yeah. sad for the family that has lost somebody. I do nothing. I've never done anything about it. Yeah. Then eight months later, August, September, October, November, yeah, I come back for the big elections, remember? Right. I'm here for six weeks. I talked to people, I, you know, it was a, a, a miraculous time. 
Then I, I'm going back to work. We're at the airport. Those days you could drive somebody there, park your car, get in, have dinner. You know, it wasn't drop and go. And why, Lindy, when I are talking about this, we are now in, in the, in, in, you know, I'm going to go in, I'm in line. She's with me. Yeah. We are chatting. We talk about the elections. We talk about this. Then we talk about the Amy Bill thing. And she says, you know, those, those four young men are now on trial. They were on trial during the elections. Yeah, we talked about it. And then she says, do you know one of those boys is known to the Los Santos? I went, sure. which non tutu zelo? Lindy West's answer was non tutu zelo, non tutu zelo. Like how many non tutu zelos do we know? Do you know, right. <laughs> we, oh, non tutu zelo, non tutu zelo, non tutu zelo. My life changed. Hmm. I bitch and moan about my life like everybody else. Things that, you know, went wrong that I, I stood yeah. there and turned to ice. I grew up with this, with this, you know, woman. We played together. We were friends in the loose sense of, you know, children, you know, playing together, calling. I've been to her mother's house. She's been to my mother's house. As we saying as close, I know her saliva. <laughs> because the culture of poverty everywhere. You have a candy in your mouth. Guess what? You share. <laughs> you share. You I share. know her saliva. Yeah. I stood there and I thought, dear God, what have I done that you have singled me out for all this good fortune and blessing that could so easily have been my son? Mm. Nothing, nothing when we were playing said non Tutuzelo would be a murderer's mother and my son sure. would not be a murderer. I just suddenly saw so clearly how I have been blessed. Not that I deserve the blessing, but at that moment I said, dear God, what have I done to deserve your love, your protection, and your blessing? Mm. Was I writing a book? No, it took me two years to figure out there was a responsibility. For two years, I was pregnant because my next question to Lindy was, how is she coping? Can I tell you something? That was the very first time I ever gave thought to the other side of the tragedy. I'm not going to lie to you. Until that moment, I had never given thought to the murder. But that evening, I learned something. Mm. The parents mm. of killers don't go on picnics. And in a way, without minimizing the pain of the people who lose a, 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 a child or a loved one, without minimizing that pain, theirs, the killer's family, suffer even more. They know they don't have our sympathy. If we think of them at all, it's in condemnation. Am I lying? No, no, no. That truth, we, 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 that we truth was made bare to me that evening. Ubuti, poor non-tutu mm. mm. 
I'm glad I've never been put in that situation. But if I, I, I had to choose between being the mother of the one who kills and the mother, now I wouldn't want to be the killer's man. Sure. Much as I love my children. How do, how do you look at people when you know they are looking at you and thinking, yo, yo, yo. Some, somehow it's you, you didn't raise this child right, or you didn't do something, you, you somehow had a hand in the choice. You have no sympathy made. from the general public. You, mm. And you know that because you yourself never sympathized with anybody else before. Yeah. It took me two years filled with this pain and shame of this young woman for me to tell her story. Yeah, sure, well, that's powerful. Ayanda, your, your question was, sorry. <laughs> mm. Did you want to jump no, in, Ayanda? Um, what was my question? <laughs> Never mind. I, I, so I think, I think <laughs> um, I, I'm I, sorry. I, I, your question, I, I remember your question, Ayanda. Do you want to ask your question and then because the question that you had asked Ayanda earlier was about well, what work Mama is doing right now, and yeah. in, ter in terms of like, well, yeah, what work is she doing in terms of training and education? Because, again, that that those some of those key areas you mentioned, Mama, about mm. how how people can be empowered and how people can uh, gain that sense of a agency to help themselves, and and we know that you do you do do work in those respects. So I think Ayanda, were you going to ask something more about that? Yeah, I think it was going to be just, I think like, yeah, what kind of teachings are you doing at the moment, especially mm -hmm. around your, the work my, that you've left us with today? What, what I do is I write. I, as I said before, a little while before, I've just finished a, a book of, I think about, is it 18 or 20 essays? Mm -hmm. Only my truth. And I cover some of the things you talk about and others. But, uh, and I'm working on a novel, When the Village Sleeps. Hmm. Are we the first to know, to know about this, Mama? Is this an exclusive? Yes. Pardon? <laughs> are we the are first we, ones the to first know? To hear about, about this novel? Yeah, well, a little bit. I, I mean, it, it, the publisher will publish it, I think, next year. It's about, it's really, it's about poverty and how you are not getting out if you are not doing any, but really it's about village South Africa and the Malays around in the country and our non-response. Hmm. You know the saying, it takes a village to raise a child? Yes. What happens when the village sleeps? What happens to the children? Sure. Because the way our young people are turning out tells me village South Africa is fast asleep mm. regarding that responsibility. That is, I'm so looking forward to reading that because I think it's, because I think part of what I'm hearing, just the bit that you're talking about is that you're reminding us that we have a collective responsibility to our country. Yes in yes. the way yeah. that we, we steward it, in the way that we raise our young, in the way that we correct ourselves. And I think that's in, so, in, in, so important. In gratefulness for our country and for our life, we should mm -hmm. wish good on everybody. Mm -hmm. The story of my life is a story of 
I hope, encouraging people who are born into poverty. Don't mm. pack yourself in poverty for the rest of your life. You are robbing me of your kids. You are robbing the country. You are robbing the, the, the nation and perhaps the world. Yes. Nowadays I can see what's up, gotta close my eyes and just pray about it Most times when you hit me up, I know you want something, I feel a way about it Married now, got the kid coming, got my mind spinning like a merry-go-round Ears open to them old heads, when they come around I speak very slow I gotta double down on this, baby we gon' have to budget down on that it's been a long time, Sam Cook, with a change coming, all facts. I can see the strange fruit, all black. Django's candy, yell phrase. See the bullet carrying a noose. Billy now's blood on them leaves. Hold up, look, I cannot anticipate it. It's overrated. I am no longer a slave through the cross. I know, mama, we made it. Congratulations, through his image, we are made. And the spirit is giving me patience for all the races. Privileged performing hate. And this ignorance, I rise above. I slide them love. Shine my light all in their face. And I hope they cannot take it. Sophia Stewart, I escaped the matrix. Escape like 95, who cannot run to the arms of the one who loves you? 98 is. I am the latest. I am your favorite right now in the sun. Therefore, I am a raisin. I am a raisin. Raisin in the sun. Sydney Portier with it. Check out the cadence. Woo!